Trigger warning, this episode discusses in great detail violence against women and children. Savannah LaFontaine Greywind was a beautiful 22-year-old in love with life and with her boyfriend of seven years, Ashen Metheny. They were about eight months pregnant with their first baby, a girl who they would name Hazley Joe. Savannah was born and raised in North Dakota and was a member of the Spirit Lake tribe, spending much of her time on the Spirit Lake Reservation on Devil's Lake. She had a beautifully soft heart and a very close and loving relationship with her parents. Ashton and Savannah were both active in their indigenous culture and had strong, strong family values. At the time, Savannah was living with her family in North Fargo and had recently enrolled in a four-year program. She and Ashton were getting ready to move into an apartment on September 1st, but in mid-August, everything would change. I'm your host, Katherine Galvin, true crime lover, seeker of justice, and intuitive medium, and this is Murder and Mediumship. Before we dive fully into this case, I'd like to take a moment to thank my listeners and those who pledge my Patreon in support of the show. I have added a PayPal link to the show notes for anyone who would like to donate in support of production of this show without making a monthly pledge. Thank you for the review, J. Oliver K.E., who says, I'd give it 10 stars if I could. And thank you to Zuli0304 for your review as well. Zuli writes, I'm a sucker for a good true crime podcast, and Catherine has really nailed it with murder and mediumship. I look forward to each episode drop. She gives you background on the victim's story and doesn't hold back her feelings, which I find refreshing. Each episode is told with compassion and empathy for the person who lost their life and the loved ones impacted by that loss. Her intuition is mesmerizing and paints such a vivid picture with the utmost respect for the families. Give this podcast a listen, and I'm sure you'll be hooked from your first episode, just like I am. Good Lord, Zuli, thank you so much for such a beautiful review. It's so appreciated. And if you guys would like to leave a review, go ahead and do that on iTunes, as the more reviews the show has, the more ears it can find. Send any show request to Katherine Galvin at katherineanintuitive.com. Okay. This is the story of Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. On August 19th, Savannah was home in her family's apartment when a resident of the building, Brooke Cruz, came down to ask Savannah if she minded trying on a dress that she was making so that she could finish pinning it and altering it. She offered her $20 to do it, and Savannah kind of thought, well, why not, and went upstairs to her third floor apartment. Evidently, her dad was kind of put off by this. Like, why would she need to make $20 doing this? She has everything she needs, a supportive family and a boyfriend who makes his own money, who supports her. But nevertheless, she went up to help out. And again, she's eight months pregnant, okay? She was actually a certified nursing assistant specializing in elderly care. And it's very possible that the $20 really didn't matter and that she was just helping out a neighbor. So, That's kind of the thing that she would be likely to do anyway. Like I said, eight months pregnant, and I know at about that time in my pregnancies, I was pretty much overdoing anything, but maybe I would have been open to that just to get out of the house, get out of my own four walls for a little bit and be around different people. I'm not really sure, but who's to say really? So she texted her mom to let her know that she was heading up to the neighbor's apartment to help her with a dress and was ordering a pizza and would be back down soon. I did find one account where, and it really was only one account, so I'm not sure if this could even be validated or anything like that, but she had evidently texted her mom and said, is this woman crazy? Like, should I go? 
which is interesting, right? So after a while, Norberta, Savannah's mom, got a little concerned. By the time the pizza arrived, Savannah still wasn't home. This went from being back down soon to a little bit concerning. Norberta had sent Savannah's younger brother up, and no one answered the door, but he could hear a sewing machine in the apartment, which gave them a little bit of comfort. Norberta and her husband came became concerned, though, because Savannah's car wasn't there, and she again was super pregnant, and it's not like she was going to go for a long walk or something and would have told them if she were leaving. Besides this fact, Savannah wasn't answering any messages from her mom, which was highly unusual, especially considering she was only upstairs and was only supposed to be gone momentarily. Roberta went back up to the third floor apartment and knocked on the door three times when Brooke Cruz answered and let them know that Savannah had left not too long ago. I believe at this point her dad actually asked if he could take a look around, but Brooke had refused him the right to do so. And I mean, I guess I kind of understand that. She doesn't really need to allow him in there. But regardless, her car's still there. Where was she going to go without that pizza? Before eating the pizza, excuse me. And Ashton let them know too that not only had she stopped texting her mom, but she kind of abruptly stopped texting him back as well. So at this point, the family knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that something had to be wrong. Something's just not right here at all. So they go to the police very quickly, and the police go to Brooke's apartment where her boyfriend, William Hone, answered the door and allowed police to look around. They found nothing, and they left. Roberta and Savannah's sister tell a local news station later that something is wrong, very wrong, and police are not moving fast enough. So they begin to put up signs all over the place, plaster her face on social media, really turn up the heat fast. And you have to understand, this, from what from what I can grasp, this is her family was living in the basement apartment. There was someone on the second floor, or theoretically the first floor, I guess, and then the second floor, which would have been like the top apartment where Brooke Cruz was living. So it doesn't sound like this is a huge complex where there's hundreds of apartments or even dozens. It would have been something that you would have to see her leave or have the inclination that she could have left, like heard her leaving, something like that. But that didn't happen. So it made no sense how she could have just poof, disappeared, which is why her family was so concerned to begin with, because she didn't leave. It made no sense at all. So the police go back to the apartment again and still no sign of Savannah or her baby. Now, thank God Savannah's family was tenacious and unrelenting in their pursuit to get law enforcement to do more and to garner media attention, because that all happened only because of their pushing. They held a prayer vigil at a local medical center to really push for FBI involvement. And this media attention that they received was strictly local. It's not like this went national. If you recall from the story I covered about Daisy May Heath, this is something that the FBI would have jurisdiction over and absolutely could be called because it is a missing Native American. They automatically have jurisdiction from what I understand. If I am wrong, please correct me. A reward was announced to the public that anyone with information leading to Savannah would receive $7,000. And on August 24th, the police do their third search on the apartment and find a newborn. The reason that they did this, the only reason that they searched this apartment was because a co-worker of, of Hone's had told police that Hone was talking about having a newborn at home the day before, which seemed really odd to them. This is what opened that door to the third and final search, and clearly the police knew that they were somehow involved from the beginning because they had been keeping their eye on them, but it's infuriating to know how quickly they were called and wouldn't do enough. 
Baby Hazley Joe was found in their apartment and taken immediately to a local hospital and put under protective custody. She was rather quickly reunited with Ashton and Savannah's family. Though they confirmed that the baby was Savannah's, they would not aid in the effort to find Savannah. Brooke insisted that when Savannah came up to help with the dress, she taught her how to induce labor, and two days later, Savannah came back with the baby and gave it to her and her boyfriend. So she wanted you to believe that Savannah induced labor, gave birth to this baby on her own, came back to a perfect stranger, gave her the baby, and just left. Ghosted. I mean, that seems totally reasonable, right? Especially with the supportive family, a supportive boyfriend, and all of the friends in the world to help her with everything. Like she had no reason to ditch this baby and run. None. Especially to have it without any kind of medical care or anything like that. She was so excited to have this baby. There's no way she would have just given birth on her own, handed the baby to a perfect stranger, and left. So Hazley is, just so you know, I don't want to make you wait until the end here that she is still doing really well today and actually shares custody, Ashton shares custody of Hazley Joe with Savannah's parents. So she is being raised by both sides of her family. Savannah was found three days after Hazley. Unfortunately, she was found wrapped in plastic and snagged on a log in the Red River just outside of Fargo and over the Minnesota border. While the exact cause of death was not released, it was known that she died from a violent death. All in all, the entire ordeal lasted about eight days. And in those eight days, Savannah went missing on August 19th after going up to the apartment of Brooke Cruz and William Hone. While there, Cruz shoved her, according to Cruz, shoved her, knocked her down, and cut her baby from her womb using a carpenter knife. Savannah was alive during this horrific attack. Brooke tried to tell police that Savannah was knocked unconscious, but the coroner report showed no evidence of any head trauma whatsoever. And I don't understand why you would lie about this either, because you already carved a baby from a mother's womb. It's almost like she was trying to make herself feel better by saying, well, I knocked her out first, which wasn't even the case. So after Hone returned home from work that day, he found 22-year-old Savannah LaFontaine Greywind laying in a pool of blood on his bathroom floor. At that point, Brooke picked up the baby and told him, this is our baby, we're a family. I don't know about you, but that gives me chills to read and see and hear. So Hone claims that he had no intent to kill Savannah and that he only found out about Brooke's plan when he came to the horrific scene. However, when he came upon the scene, his first action was to take a rope and tie it around Savannah's neck to ensure that she was actually deceased. And again, some accounts of this event actually have him saying, there, she's dead now. From that point, they cleaned up the bloody mess, packed a trash bag with bloody towels, and moved Savannah to the closet. So when police showed up to do what could only have been a quick search of the apartment, the baby was actually laying under a blanket on the bed directly next to Hone and went completely undetected. I can't imagine how much more quickly she could have been getting medical care and back with her family had she even made a peep while police had been there. And she's not to term yet. I know Savannah was eight months and it's not like she was a micro preemie, but she was born prematurely in a very, very traumatic way. She needed medical care. Had she even made a people police had been there, she probably could have been returned a lot more quickly, but who's to say? So during this search, Savannah was actually laying deceased on the floor of a closet. This really doesn't add up to me. I see the police moved in. 
and investigated the apartment as they should have, but how thoroughly could you have looked if there was a dead body on the floor of a closet? A person is missing, and because you don't see them chained up in the middle of the apartment floor, you go ahead and assume, yeah, she's not there? I feel like my four-year-old puts more effort into finding a missing toy before determining he can't and shouting for help, and if you have kids, you know they really don't look for anything at all before shouting for help. Police may have stepped in quickly, but if this apartment had truly been searched the way that it should have been, who knows what could have shifted. Even if it was only to get that baby to the hospital for medical care faster or to not be living in fear and torment for a week while your daughter is missing. After the police investigated the first time, Hone and Cruz decided to get Savannah out of the apartment. I imagine they didn't think they could be so lucky to have a dead body in there for multiple police searches, right? So they placed Savannah's plastic-wrapped body into a hollowed-out dresser and carried her down to a red truck that he had borrowed, that Hone borrowed, to take her to the Red River and dump her body. They took the bag of bloody towels to a dumpster in West Fargo. A chilling detail worth mentioning, though, Hone, Cruz, and the baby had actually all been out together in public while this desperate search for Savannah was going on in the neighborhood. It's sickening to see how bold and brazen they were with their choices and actions. This was not the first time that Cruz or Hone showed violent tendencies, as Hone had been charged with child abuse in 2011. He brought his infant son to the emergency room with skull fractures behind his ears, and it was determined that those fractures could have only been caused by abuse and were absolutely no accident. Cruz's sordid past would also prove a history of violence and erratic behavior, but something like this never seemed possible even to those who would speak on this. At 17, Cruz had a baby and left her daughter with the dad in Florida. When the child was around 14, she had brief contact with her via social media and then fell off the planet for the poor, probably lucky girl, realistically. Then at age 23, she was jailed in misery for writing false checks and again in Texas for violating parole. I think suffice it to say that the um, apartment they were living in didn't do background checks. In 2006, she had two children with her then-husband, Carl Cruz. But after three years, their marriage ended and Cruz took off for California. She eventually returned to Carl, but was arrested in 2012 for assaulting him with a knife. Again, background checks, my friends. Shedding more light on just what kind of depravity Cruz is filled with, her ex-husband Carl said that she kept journals about serial killers, childbirth, C-sections, along with supply lists for birth, like oxytocin to induce labor contractions, or to force an abortion. She also claimed to have had a miscarriage in 2011, but with the amount of lies stacking up like this, who really knows? So in 2010, 11, and 12, she went to Australia. 2012 was after her assault charges, and there she met and married Andrew Murray in February of 2012. This marriage lasted only a few months as Murray was actually able to quickly catch on to her numerous huge lies. She told him that her maiden name was Cruz, which it was definitely not, and she neglected to tell him that she had ever even been married before or that she even had existing children with those other men. When she returned to the U.S. after he encouraged her to go home and get help and reconnect with her kids, he also called the local police in North Dakota to let them know about her erratic behavior. In addition to the journals about childbirth, she became obsessed with true crime. And I don't want to shame here because, hi, most of us are listening to this. We're obsessed with true crime too. But she even wrote her thesis on serial killers. She fought Carl for custody of her kids. And I really feel like here that the only reason she fought Carl for custody of her kids was because Andrew Murray told her to. I wonder if he had never said that to her and just kicked her out if she even would have done that. 
but she lost custody altogether because of this fight and was left with only strict visitation rights. And it was then, just after all of this and just after Hone's abuse conviction, that they met and became partners. And here is where their tumultuous relationship, she lies yet again, telling him that she's pregnant with his baby and needs him to come back to her. Cruz went so far as to email Hone a phony pregnancy test and a phony sonogram to prove her pregnancy. As time went on, though, and there clearly was no baby to be had, Hone told her that, quote, she'd better produce one. Now, for just a second, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I feel like he was saying this in a, like, prove it type manner, not an actual ultimatum of show me a baby like any baby and I'll stay or I'm out. I think he was more or less calling her bluff. But regardless, that's when she eyed up Savannah and decided that this was the woman whose baby she would take and make her own. There are countless stories of women who had strange encounters with Cruz that came out once this trial had begun. Cruz was given life in prison without the possibility of parole for conspiracy to commit murder, kidnapping, and providing false information to police. Hone was sentenced to life with parole for kidnapping and lying to the police as well. However, his sentence was later reduced to 20 years. Baby Hazley Jo is now four years old, and according to her daddy, Ashton, looks just like her mommy. Ashton said in an interview in 2018, every day I am reminded of her and more and more because every day Hazley grows and she's starting to look more like her mother. I miss Savannah so, so much, and I've never put love into someone like I did her. Because of this gruesome and brutal murder, and because of the response of police and the difficulty that it took to try to get larger resources to aid in the search for Savannah and her baby, North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp introduced Savannah's Act to improve tribal access to federal crime information databases and to create standardized protocols in response to missing and murdered Indigenous women. The Act was passed in, th- in 2019, and its purpose to give law enforcement its purpose is to give law enforcement more direction on how to record tribal victims in federal databases, as well as how to accurately report statistics on missing or murdered Native Americans. It's meant to implement strategies on how to educate the public on how to use the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, known as NAMIS, and to develop guidelines that are fitting for each region as to how to respond to cases of missing and murdered Native Americans, as each region is not one-size-fits-all, so to speak. Further, it directs law enforcement to conduct specific outreach to tribes, tribal organizations, and urban Indian organizations regarding how to use systems such as the NamUs system and other similar programs. Of course, this requires money to implement, and therefore the bill also authorized the Department of Justice to provide grants for the developing and implementing of these new policies and protocols, as well as to report the data related to missing or murdered Native Americans. Lastly, it dictates that tribes may also submit their own guidelines to the Department of Justice responding to these cases. There is nothing that can right the wrong or the brutality of the crime against Savannah and her family, the trauma that they will have to relive daily, and that this poor little girl will experience for not having her mother and eventually learning just how her mother passed. The passing of the act, however, hopefully creates more accountability to law enforcement to perform their jobs to the highest of their abilities every time a Native American is reported missing or murdered. The fact is that, like police responded as quickly as they did, they still did not respond 
with their full authority. They could have called the FBI in earlier, as it's up to local police to do in this scenario, but they did not. And they could have conducted a much more thorough search of the apartment. Help us to draw more attention and light to the thousands of cases of missing and murdered Native Americans by sharing this podcast. Leave a review on iTunes, as the more reviews the show has, the more it'll be suggested to others, so that stories like Savannah's, like Daisy's, like those to come, can be heard. And thank you once again for listening to Murder and Mediumship.